We return to Psalm 51, verse 17, and our sermon from this text is entitled this morning, A Broken and a Contrite Heart. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. The setting for the psalm can be read in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And as the title of the psalm showed us, God broke David's heart over his sin, his sin of adultery, his sin of murder, his sins against God. And as I hope we'll see today in the preaching of the word, one great reason God broke David's heart is that through David's words inspired by the Holy Spirit, he might break your heart as well over your sins. Let's look first at the text briefly, and then we'll consider a doctrine that's taught in it in the light of all of Scripture. And then by grace, we'll have some applications for our souls. So first, the text. We see here in Psalm 51, 17, a sufficient sacrifice. Consider the sacrifice itself that's being offered. It says first, a broken spirit, and then next, a broken and a contrite heart. What is this brokenness it's speaking of? This contrition. Well, the words themselves speak of something that is broken or even shattered into many pieces, or perhaps ground down and crushed to bits. It's an image of entire destruction. Imagine a piece of pottery shattered on concrete, unable to be put back together, utterly useless, entirely a loss, total destruction, and a total destruction of the total Man, it extends to everything. It's a destruction that's laid out in another psalm, Psalm 38, starting in verse 2. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. He goes on to say, my wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. A total destruction in both soul and, in a sense, in the body. And what is this over? Why is David broken? It's because of sin. The whole psalm speaks 
of sin. Have mercy upon me, O God. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. I have sinned. I've done evil. On and on. Piling on terms. All to speak of his unspeakably evil sin. It speaks to us of sin's guilt, that it deserves punishment from God, which is why he's asking for mercy, but also of sin's power. David wants sin to be taken away from him and him the power to live a godly life restored to him as he goes on, for example, in verse 12, to pray, uphold me with thy free spirit. It's because he understands in himself that he is on the one hand totally guilty before God, that his sins in themselves deserve a total destruction, but also that in himself he is totally unable either to deal without guilt or to break the power of that sin. And therefore, we can describe this brokenness as a sort of despair, hopelessness. Indeed, even a total despair and hopelessness. Not, let's be clear, a despair over mercy, as if God would never be gracious. The psalm is written, indeed, because God is gracious to sinners. But it's a despair of self. A hopelessness concerning his own ability and resources to save himself from sin. That's the broken heart that's put before us. This is the sacrifice. Second, we see its sufficiency, which is to say it is enough. This sacrifice of a broken heart is enough first for the one who's offering it, for the one who's doing the sacrifice Look at how that's spoken to us in the first word. The sacrifices, plural. There's more than one. It goes on to speak of a singular broken heart. But here we have plural. And this is a poetic way to say that this is not just one sacrifice. It's all of them. This is everything you need to bring to God. It takes care of Of all the sacrifices, consider verse 16. He says, thou desirest not sacrifice. Speaking here of the animal sacrifices in the temple. God did command them. But compared to how important this is, they're not even commanded. You didn't desire them, he says to God, else would I give it. That is to say, if I gave them without this sacrifice of a broken and a contrite heart, they'd be useless. This is the one that's enough. And it makes any other sacrifice I would offer pleasing to God. That slain animal that the people of old would take to the temple. They would take an animal and it would be slain there and they would see it burned on the altar. That was to them first a picture of the slain Savior, Jesus Christ. But in that Savior, it was to be a picture of themselves to see themselves slain upon that altar, broken as David was over their sins. So it's sufficient. That's enough. That's what God wants. In Paul's words 
to present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. But then second, it's enough for the one who's receiving the sacrifice. The sacrifice is enough for God. It is the sacrifice, as it says, of God. It's all he asks for. And when he receives it, he is satisfied. The second part of our text says that. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Now men might despise it. The men of this world hate a truly humble Christian who's broken in his heart over his sin. But God is not like them. God loves this. He's happy to see it. It pleases him to see this brokenness of spirit over sin. And God is not just pleased. He's highly pleased. He will not in any way look down on this sacrifice. It makes him happy, we can say. And a powerful testimony to that comes through the end of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 66. Verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. More valuable to God than all the other glorious things his hand has made is this trembling sinner coming to him with a broken heart. So that's our text. Let's summarize what it's teaching for us this morning. That a heart broken over sin is essential to true Christian piety. This is a basic of the Christian faith. A heart broken over sin is essential to true Christian piety, the godly life. I want to show that to you in six brief points. Think of six ways in which this broken heart is necessary. First, the broken heart is necessary to prepare for faith. There's no way anyone will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ until he first has this kind of despair about himself. If a sinner is holding on to some resource of his own to save himself, he will never come to Jesus Christ to be saved. True preaching of the word, when it saves a man, it pierces his heart, as we read in Acts 2, verse 37. We see it again in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer. He cries out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you hear that broken heart? Do you hear the despair in his voice? He's done with himself. He was, in fact, about to kill himself, which was an ungodly despair. He was prevented from that by the apostles. But God, in his mercy, changed that ungodly despair to a godly despair, which said, I'm done. I cannot save myself. What now must I do? And the answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you see how that brokenness was necessary before he could believe? Until you stop believing in yourself, so to speak, you'll never believe in Christ. Or as Christ himself put it, it is not 
them that are whole that need a physician. It is those that are sick. Second, the broken heart is necessary for repentance, without which no man will be saved. In our Presbyterian church, we have in our shorter catechism a summary of repentance, and it's an act of God's free grace. It is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. And you see how in that good biblical definition of repentance, it includes a knowledge of sin and a grief and hatred of it. And this makes sense. If you understand repentance as turning from sin, why would you turn from something you don't hate? If you still embrace and love it, you'll not turn. This broken heart is done with sin. You can't have it without it. Indeed, if you read in Ezekiel how he describes repentance, chapter 36, verse 31, he says that those who will be saved loathe themselves. They abhor themselves, even as Job did. And then they repent in dust and ashes. They have to have a broken heart before they'll turn from sin. So first, we've seen it's preparatory for faith and necessary for repentance. Third, the broken heart leads to justification. To be justified means to have your sins forgiven and to have your record clean so you can stand before God as if you had never sinned. It's what every sinner needs before he can have any hope of heaven. There is no way to be justified without this broken heart. In part, that's because of what we already saw. You won't believe in Jesus Christ if you don't have a broken heart. And if you don't believe, you will not be justified. But Jesus himself gave us an illustration of this. Do you remember the two men in the temple? The Pharisee and the publican? And the Pharisee, he stood and prayed and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He was a proud man. The other man, the publican, lowly tax collector, he couldn't look to heaven. He beat upon his breast and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the image of a broken heart. And Christ tells us that man went home to his house justified rather than the other. It was the brokenhearted man whose sins were forgiven. There's no way to be forgiven without it. Fourth, it's a part of sanctification. And sanctification is that grace that follows justification, whereby a sinner who's now been forgiven is also changed so that his life now is different. He's not a slave to sin anymore. He's set free, and he is more and more made able to serve God. But that service is impossible without a broken heart, especially because that service requires, as Paul says in Galatians 5.24, for us to crucify sin. Well, sin is part of our heart. Sadly, we received it by nature from Adam. And there's no crucifying of your heart until it's broken. If you don't have this broken heart, which is done with yourself and your sins, you'll never have the willingness to drive the dagger of God's word into your own heart. To put to death your sin by the Holy Ghost. Fifth, it's basic to cross-bearing. And you'll recall, if you're familiar at all with the Gospels, that the Lord Jesus tells us to bear the cross is essential 
to discipleship. If any man would come after me, let him take up his cross, Christ says, and follow me. You have to die to yourself daily if you would be a Christian. And there's no dying while your heart is not broken. Because you in pride will not be willing to take that heavy cross. And you won't be able to say, as all Christians can, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But six, and finally, if you consider the nature of this age, it's impossible to be honest and not have a broken heart. Think of all the things around us. We live in a world, as Paul says in Romans 8, that groans under sin. We see everything around us dying and at war and all sorts of things. The inanimate creation besides man, it bears it in its own way. And we see all things fall apart and die. But if you look at man, especially wars and rumors of wars and all things disintegrating. And then you look in the church and you see the same and you say with Jeremiah, oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. If you don't look and see the terror, the horror that sin has caused in this life and have a broken heart, you are not paying attention. But that's only the beginning. Because that horror of sin comes right here and it comes around with you everywhere you go in your own heart. And if you're not broken about that, oh, you, you don't even know yourself. The Apostle Paul, one of the holiest men that ever lived, he described his own experience with this in Romans 7 about the law that is within him. How he carries this old man who's always fighting against the law of his mind. That is the regenerate part, the, the new birth that God has put in his life. And he cries out, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? That's the cry of a broken heart. We heard the jailer in Philippi make a similar cry. The Christian cries this every day. How, Lord, can I bear this burden? How can I be delivered from my own remaining sinfulness? That's a broken-hearted cry. We understand that the feeling of our sinfulness does ebb and flow in the Christian life. But every true Christian has the substance of this. Has a knowledge of the wretchedness of the sin that is within him. And how can you have that knowledge and not have a broken heart. So I hope you've seen in these ways. For faith, repentance, justification, sanctification, cross-bearing. And the very nature of the age in which we live. While sin still reigns. You must have a broken heart. It's essential to true Christian piety. Now I want to bring up before we move on. Three objections that often come. They may be in your heart now. If not, you may have heard them, or Satan may bring them to you. So I want to help you. One common thing to say against this need for a broken heart is, aren't Christians supposed to be joyful? You know Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Well, if the Christians to rejoice always, then why are we to have a broken heart always? Well, it's because that's not a contradiction. 
Both things are true. It's a question of object and of timing. There are sad things in this world, sin being the chief one, in a certain sense the only one, and as long as sin's here, we have to have a broken heart about it. But there are, to the Christian, also great joys. God is always God. Christ is always on the throne. Sin is always forgiven to the justified Christian. Heaven is always a sure hope. If you know those things, then you will, you must always be joyful as well. It's as if a Christian with his two eyes is always in the one shedding tears and in the other looking with joy to his Savior. It can't really be otherwise in this age. And then as Ecclesiastes tells us, the wise man knows that there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. The Christian life is mixed. So Christian joy is no objection. But second, people speak about Christian righteousness as if it would prevent us from a broken heart. They say, rightly, from 1 Corinthians 6, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I hope you know that. If your life has not been changed by the Holy Ghost, if you're not sanctified, you're not justified either. If you're not living for God, then God is not your God, and you shouldn't think that you're saved. Remember, the final judgment will be according to works. That is not to say that anyone can earn heaven by his works, but no one will go to heaven without them. And you might say then, well, if the Christian should be a holy, righteous, godly man, and he must, then why would he still be broken over his sins? Well, one reason is that his past sins are still sinful. They've been forgiven, praise the Lord. But we have an example in Psalm 25, verse 7, of David praying for long forgiven sin, but still with sadness and brokenness. Remember not the sins of my youth, O God. There's a sense in which an increase of grace makes that memory all the worse, and it breaks the heart all the more, and we look back with all the more sorrow. How could I have done that to my God? And that breaks your heart. It ought to. But grace also makes present sins all the worse. Do you know the closer you grow to God, the worse it is that you still sin against him? Think of that. The closer you are, the closer, the, the more you offend God by your sins. You're sinning against more light and more knowledge. That's enough to make you cry out with Paul, a wretched man that I am. This is all true in the righteous Christian. Indeed, the more righteous a Christian grows, because he still is in a sinful world, the more sorrowful he will be about his sins. There's no other way around it. So Christian joy and Christian righteousness are no obstacle. But neither third is Christ-centeredness. Many will say this. They'll say, you shouldn't always be sad as a Christian. You shouldn't always be looking at yourself and your own sins. They sometimes will call it navel-gazing, as if all you care about is your own self. They say with Paul, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why can't you focus on Christ instead of your sins? Well, again, there actually is no conflict 
between these two things. We can't set the one against the other. Consider this. A broken heart actually is Christ-centered because it exalts him. First and foremost, by obeying him. If God tells us, as we've seen plainly, that we must have a broken heart, then doesn't it please and exalt and honor Jesus Christ himself who wrote this Bible to do it? Don't think you can exalt Christ without obeying him. But don't think you can exalt Christ without following his example either. And if there were any broken-hearted man in this earth, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Hear his grief as it's spoken to us prophetically in Psalm 69, verse 20. Reproach hath broken mine heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Now, Christ is not suffering under his own sins. His heart's not broken in that sense like David's is. But Christ was suffering under sin, under the penalty that his people deserved. And that broke his holy heart. And if Christ lived this life with a heavy, broken heart, how can his people not? The servant is not above the master. But then we also need to understand that having a broken heart actually removes from us those things that would hinder us from exalting Jesus Christ. The broken heart is the only way we can give glory to God because it's the way we deal with that sin that doesn't glorify God. In John 3, verse 30, we hear of John the Baptist. And he shows us very plainly how a broken heart, in fact, does lift Christ up when he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. The broken heart is the I must decrease. I'm nothing. I'm hopeless. I'm useless in myself. Oh, but Christ. Christ is everything. Only a broken-hearted man can say that. And do you see then how there is no conflict between a broken heart and the Christian duty of exalting Jesus Christ? So now we come to application. What must we do in response to this truth of the word of God? The first application is that of examination. You need to test your heart accordingly. You need to test your brokenness. And I urge you to this because it is a matter of spiritual life and death. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter. 7, verse 10. Second Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. You'll regret your sin, but you won't regret your salvation, he says. But the sorrow of the world 
worketh death. And this shows us that it's not merely a matter of whether you have sorrow or not, but whether you have true godly sorrow or not. And this shows us all the more how urgent this question is because the heart is deceitful and there are many fake forms of brokenness. And it's all the more urgent because those who have a fake or an absent brokenness, they will be destroyed. If your heart is not crushed now under sin, then heart and soul and flesh will be crushed forever under the eternal weight of God's wrath. A very sobering testimony of that is in Ezekiel chapter 9, in which we're told that God calls a man with an inkhorn to come and take his pen and to put a mark on the heads of those that sigh and cry over the abominations that are done in Israel. He said, find the brokenhearted men and mark them out and the rest of them kill them all. Starting at my sanctuary. Slay old and young without any respect of persons. Because this is the one sacrifice that matters to me, God says. And if they're not making it, I don't care how many thousands of rams they've slain. They are displeasing to me. And I will destroy them. Do you see how urgent it is then to know whether you have a truly broken heart? This is indeed a matter of eternal life and death. How then can we know? What are the marks How can we discern between a false sorrow and a true sorrow over sin? Well, I'll start with the marks of false brokenness. And the first is that it's incomplete. It's not enough. We have a striking example of this in Esau. In Esau, in Hebrews 12, speaks of him. In Hebrews 12... In verse 17, we read of Esau, excuse me, it says, Ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now, this, of course, is not speaking to us of someone who sincerely desires the saving grace of repentance. But God doesn't give it. Anyone who sincerely desires God's saving grace will receive it. Esau was not desiring spiritual things. His tears were over the consequences of his sin. They were not over sin itself. Esau missed his birthright. He missed the cattle and the wealth. And he realized he scorned it because of his foolishness. But his concern was not that he offended God. That's what I mean by an incomplete brokenness. He's crying real tears, but spiritually, they're fake. They don't show a saving brokenness of heart. There's also, second, a disobedient brokenness, which is not real. And the example of that in the Bible is Saul. Saul, who time after time appeared to show some repentance, saying sorry for pursuing David and yet going right back to it as a dog to its vomit, as the Proverbs tell us. It was a disobedient brokenness. There was no consistent obedience to God. And that is another mark to test. 
But third, false brokenness is often despairing. I don't mean here a despair of mercy, or excuse me, a despair of self. That's good. It's good to despair of yourself. That's what true brokenness is. But this would be a despair of mercy. A despair that refuses to believe that God is willing to be gracious to a sinner. This is perhaps the most damning brokenness of all because it's as if a man comes right to the threshold of the kingdom and says, Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm lost and dead. Oh, but you're not willing to take me. And there on the threshold of heaven, he's cast into hell. The example of this in the Bible is Judas. Judas, who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Judas, we read, repented himself. He was sorry. He knew that what he did was wrong. He took that silver. He cast it back to the priest, even though they wouldn't take it. He threw it to them. He wouldn't want anything to do with it. But then that Judas went and he hung himself. And putting it together with Acts, it appears that as he was hanging himself, he slipped and fell and burst his body open on a rock. What an awful death. But a fitting warning. He despaired of God's mercy. And that was a sign he had no true brokenness of heart. Whatever tears he cried over his sin, he did not have a heart pleasing to God. What then, on the other side, are the marks of true brokenness? Well, it's the other side of what we said. The answer to an incomplete brokenness is a thorough brokenness. And we return to our psalm, Psalm 51. David says against thee, thee only have I sinned. I've sinned against others, yes, but it's as if that doesn't matter because sin is against you, God. I've offended you. I'm not worried about the birthright that I lost. I'm worried, I'm terrified that I offended you, oh God. That's all I care about. And I've done this evil in thy sight. But then he takes in verse 5 that sin from sins to sin, the nature itself. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Before I even remember, I know this by faith, that those sins that came out of me came from me. And from this awful, evil nature that I have. It's like in the garden. He's not just plucking off the heads of the weeds. He's digging down to find the root and pulling it out. Confessing the very depths of his sinfulness. That's a thorough brokenness. Second, unlike Saul, his disobedient brokenness, true brokenness is obedient. It's a broken heart. That because, precisely because it's sorry over sin, refuses to go back and do it again. It shows a true disgust about sin by refusing to do it again. And even though Christians sadly do continue to sin in this life, and this obedience will never be perfect, it is acceptable to God because it's sincere. Christians don't want to sin. And it's as if when Christians do sin, they're dragged into it against their will. They have a heart and a desire and an aim and a whole life that's aimed at holiness, not at evil. And a brokenness that is despairing is answered by a brokenness that hopes. This is put very beautifully in Psalm 130, verses 4 and 5. 
we see this wholesome brokenness. If thou, O Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That's a broken heart right there. I'm done. I have nothing in myself. If I had to make an account for my own soul, it would fail. I'd die. I'd go to hell. I say it before you, Lord. I lay my case. I'm hopeless. But with thee is forgiveness, that thou mayest be feared. That's the difference between a sorrow of the world that leads to death and a sorrow that leads to everlasting life. True, godly sorrow looks from sin to Jesus Christ and finds in him the answer that Judas never found. It's the answer that Peter found when he, also in his own way, betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he went out and wept bitterly, but he wept with joy, with hope, because he returned to the Lord as God. Test yourself, my friends. Do you have this true, thorough, obedient, and hopeful brokenness? Second, then, having made this test honestly, it's safe and good and right now to take sweet comfort from this text. What a comfort. There's a comfort in the first place of propriety because the broken heart is fitting. It makes sense. We live in a sinful world that's destroyed by sin. We have a sinful nature. Isn't it right to mourn this? Remember that the Ecclesiastes tells us there is a time to weep. And it tells us later that it's better, in a sense, to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. Proverbs 25, 20 tells us that when a man is sorrowful, then singing songs to him is like vinegar upon nitre. It's like vinegar and baking soda. It's going to explode. It won't help anyone. When things are sad, it's right to be sad. There's something so fitting and good in its place and time to mourn and weep over our sins. And we live in a world that is happy-go-lucky. And that doesn't give proper time to this that shies away from it and tells people who are mournful about sin, why are you so sad? They want you to be all smiles all the time, but, but no, we can't. We can't. Not in a sinful world. So it's proper. There's a fittingness to it. But there's an even deeper and richer consolation of salvation. We've seen this already. Christian, I want you to know this. If you have this truly broken heart, you are that man in the temple who cried, God be merciful to me. And having made that cry, you do and you will go down to your house justified, forgiven of all your sins and given a status before God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself as if you had never sinned. What consolation is there? David received this from the prophet Nathan when he came to him to confront him of his great sin. He said, the Lord has put away thy sin. Second, there's a comfort of sanctification. And Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians, speaks to us of this. 
He says that the sorrow, the godly sorrow, it leads to life. But then he goes on to explain what that life looks like. And there are great benefits for our growth and grace of this kind of sorrow. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians 7. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. What vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. He's saying, I see how this sorrowful heart has set you on a war path against sin. It's made you want to take vengeance on your sin. It's a good description of the duty of mortification, putting it to death. This is good. That's a comfort when we're set on that path. But then also, of course, the comfort of eternal life. An eternal life in which there will be no more brokenness of heart. It's only temporary. Weeping may tarry for the night. The short night of this world. This light affliction. But for a moment. But joy cometh in the morning. That day when every Christian who's had a broken heart in this life. Will say thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast loosed my sackcloth. And clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing praise unto thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. If you have a truly broken heart today, that's your hope. And that should bring you great comfort, even in your deepest sorrows. But third and finally, I bring you an application of exhortation. You must break your heart. You must see to it by grace that you have this kind of broken and contrite heart. And having it, you must see that you continue to break it. How must you do this? The first means is meditation. You need to think on God and his holiness, as even we did in our prayer this morning, thinking as Isaiah did of the Lord high and lifted up in his awesome Holiness before which even the sinless angels cover their feet and faces. That will break your heart. Think on sin and its sinfulness, on what it's done to God and its eternal consequences. Think of its punishment, of hell, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. As Christ says three times in Mark chapter 9. Think of, as well, affliction and discipline of Christians in this life. Those who will not go to hell, but nonetheless are chastised by their heavenly Father. God does that in part to break your heart. Use it. Think of times which God has brought to you the rod. And as you hope for your children, those of you who have young children in the home, so God hopes for you that the rod will soften you and it will change you. Think about it, that it might. But do not think of these things without this. Think on Christ. Think on his loveliness. Think on his willingness to bear reproach and have a broken heart for you. And heed his command as he gave to those women who followed him 
on the way to the cross, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, that it might be fulfilled in you what the prophet Zechariah said, they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. I call you as well as meditating to pray. This brokenness is something you must have, and we ought to ask from God all the things that he requires of us. Ask him for brokenness. Plead promises like Zechariah 12.10 or Ezekiel 36.26 and 31 that God would give to you to abhor your own self and to have this broken heart. And then in prayer, confess your sins. You may not feel this brokenness all times as you ought or as you'd like. A great help is to start by recognizing the sins you know. Ask for light to confess more and keep confessing. You can challenge yourself this. You say, I don't feel my heart is very broken. Well, start confessing your sins and resolve not to stop until your heart is broken by their weight before the Lord. Third and finally, to have this broken heart, you must believe. You must have faith. If today your heart is still hard and unbroken, I would, by the power of Jesus Christ, through his word preached, break it by commanding you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in this Savior. And to do that, as we've heard, you must then forsake trusting yourself. Why, sinner, are you still holding on to your own ability to save yourself? Why are you still clinging to your own merit as if God will be impressed by your good works? Why are you looking for other ways, whether it's false religion or your own self, to make your way to heaven? It's utter folly. Stop. Instead, look to Christ. Despair of all those things. But don't despair of this. That Jesus is willing to receive the brokenhearted sinner. I leave you with his words from Matthew 5. Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall be comforted. Amen.